Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. As always, this is James, bringing you three of the biggest stories the Empire Center has been following these past couple of weeks. As you know, our leaders in Albany are debating the details of the CLCPA as part of the budget right now. And part of these conversations include details such as the best ways to account for methane. We've got a helpful explainer on our blog, breaking down the differences between measuring the global warming potential of greenhouse gases over a 20-year time frame or over a 100-year time frame. Now, neither climate science nor economics wholly answers the question of which to use. And this is a critical piece of information that's needed to realistically pursue these CLCPA goals. The state health department has belatedly published a more complete COVID death count for the pandemic's first year accounting for more than 6,000 victims who were left out of the state's previous tallies because they died at home. In this latest report on the state's leading causes of death, the department put the number of COVID deaths in 2020 at 36,337. That's 21% higher than the figure in its online database. Finally, lawmakers from Nassau and Suffolk County are beefing up their opposition to charter school expansion, appearing in a series of videos with a New York State United Teachers lobbyist. The videos parrot misleading talking points about charters and are timed to coincide with the current budget-related charter discussions in Albany. The ultimate irony here is that the charter school matters under discussion would have no immediate bearing on their districts in Long Island. That's it for this segment of the podcast. Keep listening. We've got a great discussion on federalism and a deeper dive into the hospital financing situation in our state. As always, this is James. You're listening to Messages of Necessity. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity, the Empire Center for Public Policy's podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Tony Woodleaf, and he is Executive Vice President at State Policy Network. We're going to talk a little bit about what that is, and he leads a center called the Center for Practical Federalism, which is a really interesting name for a center over there, and I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit. And there's more. He is also the author of this great book, I Citizen, um, which I recommend people people read, and we'll talk a little bit about um, some of the ideas. The subtitle here is A Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance. So hello, Tony, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me. So, Tony, <laughs> first, what is State Policy Network? Because I'm not sure people know uh, what that is. What? People don't know what it is? Uh, shocking. Uh, shocking. Well, so... We've been around for 30 years, um, haven't really sought the limelight, but uh, what we've done is um, help facilitate the growth of state-based freedom organizations across the country. So think tanks, economic research centers, uh, public interest litigation groups, uh, talent development, independent journalism, um, just trying to build up sort of an ecosystem of groups that are focused on trying to advance liberty in their state capitals. The genesis of SPN was actually uh, President Reagan, towards the end of his time uh, in office, saying to um, one of our early uh, founders and benefactors, Tom Rowe, that there ought to be a Heritage Foundation in every state. And he, of course, was referencing the Heritage Foundation, which back in the day had sent a lot of talent into the Reagan administration. So that was the uh, that was the idea. 
Got it. And so Empire Center for Public Policy is one of um, the members, the affiliates in State Policy Network. Um, what what do you what what do you think is important for people in New York to know about State Policy Network's work? Well, you know, we we're proud of our relationship with Empire. You know, all of these uh, groups in the SPN network, they're independent organizations. They have separate boards and leadership. And so we view our jobs as trying to help them uh, be all that they can be, be the best that they can be, provide strategic guidance sometimes, sometimes financial support, um, links to talent and ideas. Uh, we make some investments in things like messaging communications that any one group couldn't afford. So in the case of New York, I think, um, you know, Empire has done incredible work in the you know terrible period of covid when you had so many governors behaving in dictatorial fashion and none i think worse than uh your former governor in new york who um was never really restrained by humility um or a sense of legality in the first place uh just behaved in deplorable ways and it was really due to empire's work that some of that came to light. You know, they did extensive research to show that he he had his finger on the policy of sending COVID po uh, positive patients back into nursing homes among the most vulnerable. And it was Empire's research that showed, you know, with the numbers, that there were higher death rates in those nursing homes because of what he did. And then he covered it up and they called him out on that as well. And, you know, they defend, you know, they keep an eye on things that, your average newspaper wouldn't cover that have to do with balance of power, separation of power in the state. Um, they've, they've covered how the legislature has slowly sort of eviscerated uh, its own balance of power and um, proper functioning. So all of that, I mean, that's empire and their board and staff deserve the credit. And we're just glad that we could be helpful getting them started um, at the very beginning, provide support so they could get off the ground and get running. I love it. Well, I love it partly because I um, personally am involved with both of your organizations, a board member at Empire and an executive fellow with SPN. So I, I feel like I get to witness this in real life. And there's a lot of uh, really important support that SPN provides to our nonprofit here in New York, um, Empire Center. So let's turn to your book because um, I was excited when I got the book to read it. And partly because um, there's a lot of discussion right now about the polarized state that we're in, about what is our direction as a country? Are we going to basically fall apart? Call for you know a di national divorce? I mean, there's there's all kinds of rhetoric that we are hearing. So, what were you hoping to accomplish by writing this book, Tony? Well, you know, uh, my experience is with writing. Um, you you go into it trying to accomplish um, an answer to a question that you have. Uh, that I don't find much use in books, whether they're literature or public policy or anything else. When someone goes into it didactically to just prove to you, the reader, what they already knew, what they knew all along, that's just uninteresting. So I went in with a question. I was really curious. Are we coming apart? Um, and the reason I was curious, because so many people I know take it for granted that we are. The reason I was curious is because some of the supposed evidence seemed to run counter to what I had learned uh, as a political scientist getting my PhD. So that's I went into it to answer the question, are we really coming apart? And if so, why? Mm -hmm. And if we're not, why are we being told that we are? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, in the book, I spend the first half of the book getting into polling and other data 
to make what I think is a pretty persuasive case, and I'm not the first one to make it, that in fact, most Americans are not highly polarized, red and blue, hating each other. Most Americans are not that engaged in politics, thank goodness. You know, ideology can be a poison. Most Americans are not ideological. And, you know, quite recently, we saw that for the first time, a majority of Americans don't even want to identify with the party label. The parties just have stinking brands and they deserve that. They brought that on themselves. So most Americans are not uh, highly agitated partisans. Mm -hmm. So we're not on the edge of civil war. So then the question became, well, why are we being told that we are? And so the second mm -hmm. half of the book, the argument I make is that narrative of you know looming civil war where each party says that the other party represents tyranny. Well, that's their excuse to concentrate power in D.C. and administer it undemocratically, right? Because if you're at war, if the aliens are invading, you know, the Huns are advancing, that's when you can justify abandoning all democratic norms and, you know, using the strong hand of the state to defend the nation. So that's what each party does. They say the other party is the enemy of democracy. Therefore, we need to seize power now and crush them for the good of the country. And let's just forget all the principles, you know, that that um, underlie why we are here in the first place and how how we came about to be a country. So, Tony, um, one of the things I really appreciated about your book, and I think it's a point that we don't always stop to think about. We see the the you know we we see the um, the very um, strong language, the we are on the verge of disaster type of rhetoric. You talk a little bit about what the incentives are for the folks who are using that rhetoric. And I think that's a really interesting point. What what are the incentives? Why are they doing this? What do they gain? Well, they they um, first of all, if you uh, play up the evil of your enemy, then you don't have to talk about what good you're doing in office. Right. Because it's sort of by default. Well, you know, uh, I may be worth very little, but at least you don't have the crazy orange man in office, right? Or at least you don't have the bitter, uh, tyrannical harpy in office. So that's what each party was offering is we're not the other party. And um, and they also kind of get themselves a pass for their own poor behavior. So I think that's one incentive, but also um, they can then justify all the other things they want to do, um, not passing those things through a legislature, you know, because we're on the edge, we're on the precipice of disaster. We can't wait for democracy to work. We have to build the wall. We have to, you know, force through the vaccine, whatever it is that the party wants to do, they justify doing it undemocratically with the existence of the enemy. And, mm -hmm. you know, the whole American experiment it, the 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 constitution was constructed purposely so that the national government would have to move slowly uh that was on purpose and that's a means of actually facilitating true democracy right deliberative democracy and so they turn that all on its head and in their minds well it's too slow we got to move fast we can't you know these people who are voting against us in congress well they're evil so their votes really shouldn't even count they probably don't even belong here they probably stole their election you know both parties say that and it justifies getting away with whatever they can to advance their agenda, but never doing it in a way where we, the people, vote on it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you've been emphasizing this has been an equal opportunity strategy that uh, both parties have been have been using in, in D.C. So let's talk federalism for a second, which is also a theme that's in the book, right? But 
federalism, we all know that that's a thing. And we all know that the United States has it. And uh, some of us now. <laughs> Some of us are probably had to read some of the Federalist Papers, you know, when we were in school at some point. But let's just pause for a second. What is federalism? Sure. Well, so, yeah, there's two questions. What is federalism? Then what is American federalism? So mm-hmm. you know, federalism, uh, writ largely, the basic idea is, you, you know, the little Matryoshka dolls. You've got the doll and inside the dolls, another doll and another dolls in there. You know, uh, the idea is you've got layers of authority from national all the way down to locality, um, the, the Catholics would co- talk about subsidiarity, so a similar kind of concept. And so then you try to place uh, authority at the level where it is most judiciously applied. And that would mean that, of course, your national military and that kind of stuff, that rests at the national level, but then your local administration of courts or elections or schools, well, that should be in the community. Mm-hmm. And the underlying principle is you place the power at the highest level where it's absolutely necessary with a bias towards keeping it near the people mm-hmm. over whom it will be exercised. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you don't want the people way, way there in your Imperial city telling you what your kids in your neighborhood are going to have in their library. Like that would be lunacy according to the principles of federalism. So then American federalism uh, is a step further than that because it actually, it didn't begin at the top with a national government, you know, handing down power, it began with communities, colonies that over time evolved into states as we know them. And they formed a community, a union. And from that came a national government. So that the lower levels created the federalist system by creating a national government, uh, but they gave it very, very limited power. So it's sort of a different uh, evolution than other federalist systems where you began with a, a national power that sort of handed out delegated other authorities here, the people in their communities delegated the authority upwards and tried to keep it in a locked box. But of course that didn't quite work out the way right, they hoped. Right. So one of the challenges people have to America's form of federalism is that boy, did we, did we have a lot of um, grief, tragedy, horror, on our route to get here. Um, we had a civil war, we mm-hmm. had, you know, uh, civil rights atrocities, we had all kinds of things that happened through our history because of what people will think of as because of that bottom-up approach and the difference in different states. And I think this is one of the harder questions about federalism. So what is the relationship between that bubbling up from, you know, the, the local level and decision-making that, boy, sometimes can it turn out badly, sometimes it turns out great, and the Constitution. So what are the, what's the relationship between those two things? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, and you have to wrestle with the national sin, the original sin, original American sin, uh, woven into the founding of slavery. Now, it wasn't original in the sense that only America did it, right? right. Uh, it was imported. Mm-hmm. Uh, most countries around the world at some point in their history have participated in something like slavery and many still do and we just don't want to talk about it um so there's something woven into the human condition that seems to invite that kind of evil perpetrated on one's fellow man uh and so then the way i would you know recommend we think about slavery in the american context and federalism is um did the system aid and abet it or did the system aid in its undoing uh and i would argue that um it aided ultimately in its undoing because you didn't have the possibility of a 
single national government forcing all states to adopt slavery. Now, that meant, also, of course, that you also didn't easily have a way to force all the states to adopt freedom as they should, and that led to a civil war. Um, but the argument for a federalist system is um, you have more opportunities for people and communities to discover and practice the right thing and for that to spread. Uh, and I, given the nature of human beings, that seems like a more prudent approach to governance than hoping, you know, that you're going to get the right collection of guys at the top administering it for all of us, you know. So it's a two-edged sword. In a federalist system, that means some communities are going to do a terrible job, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, you also have the opportunity to discover a better path and for that to be spread. And ultimately, I think it turns on whether you have faith in your fellow man or not. There's many reasons not to, um, but there's no alternative. You know, if mm -hmm. you create a single national power, you're still putting your faith in a handful of humans. Yeah. So I think um, one way to view federalism is it's kind of an insurance policy. You've right. got yeah. more opportunities for people to do good. You know, And it's, it's now the case that, um, you know, a state, our states have constitutions. I think sometimes people forget that our states also yeah. have constitutions. Um, but the state constitution can only give you more freedom, not not less freedom than you, you know, under the, the American constitution. So there's that other sort of uh, floor of, of protection. I think yeah. It's, yeah. federalism is not something that pops up in people's lists of when we talk about the three set, the separations of power, separation of powers. Um, we think of the three branches of government. But is federalism also an example of a balance of power? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you've got, um, well, at one practical level, right, you the balance is simply if New York becomes intolerable, I can move to Florida, yeah. right, which we've seen many people do. Mm -hmm. So there's a balancing effect that way. But also you've got then this um, necessity, you've got the that the people in one state can impose their views on the whole country because they're going to persuade their neighbors and other you know, very different, diverse states. And so they balance one another out, or at least that was the vision. And part of the impetus for the Electoral College and the Senate is you've got this kind of balancing effect. Um, you can't have one faction, one regional faction, grab control of the reins of government and force all of us to, you know, be New England mercantilists or Southern slavers or whatever else. So there's a balancing uh, intended that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh I mean, I, I heard the other day one of the governors say that, you know, surprisingly, the governors, most of them get along really well, regardless of party that they come from. And I guess that doesn't surprise you. Well, I mean, if you put uh, Newsom and DeSantis in a room, I'd be curious how well they get along. But uh, I'd be you know, curious, I, too. I'd pay for that one. <laughs> I was, yeah, I think, well, you know, there is something they are all in a club. And uh, they the but political elites in general are in a club. and. You know, that's a mixed bag. There was a time when when members of Congress, because they stayed in uh, D.C. longer during session, they had more opportunity to get to know each other as humans. And you could argue that in some ways the government was better off. We were better off. The counter argument is you could say they all got kind of swallowed up in that elitist game and we all suffered. Mm -hmm. And that would be the complaint of the conservatives in the 1950s, you know, that. Eisenhower and all the rest of them are really sellout establishmentarians. Um, but you, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if governors uh, get along in their way um, and political elites in general. And then much of their animosity is really for 
show for us because they need team red and blue yeah, to stay yeah. mad at each other. Yeah. yeah. So wrapping up, I'm curious what your message on necessity is for people in New York. When, when I think about, you know, this is a, your book is a blue blueprint for reclaiming American self-governance. Mm-hmm. What do you want to tell the people in New York about how we reclaim that? First, should we want it? And if we want it, how do we reclaim it? Yes, I think we should. Um, I think uh, I'm. A, I believe that I, I'm. I'm not strongly convicted about how any community or state should be run. I'm a small C conservative, but for me, it's more important that the people in the community decide together, and it is a democratic process for them deciding. And then you can have diverse communities. But with that said, I I I like to remind people that we have plenty of data that shows that, um, you know, even though New York is a blue state say, and Georgia's a red state, when you go district by district, um, you're hard pressed. If you give me the reddest red district in Georgia, and then the bluest blue district in New York, and then you let me run a survey of 100 questions on policy, immigration, crime, and so on. I'm going to show you that on most of those issues, there's not much divergence on the guy in the street and the gal in the street their opinions between the New Yorkers and the the Georgians, whether it's about big pharma or war in Ukraine or whatever else, there's not much divergence. There's other reasons that New York always goes blue and Georgia goes red. So I try to remind people of that, that um, the folks down the street, your neighbors are much more politically diverse than you might think if you don't really know them. So my encouragement for people in any state is get to know your neighbors and then that will begin to humanize the people on that you perceive to be on the other side of the political aisle. And once that happens, you begin to break the spell of the two national parties and their henchmen and their spokesmen and the hacks and the flacks and the pollsters and all these people who try to manipulate us. And that, to me, is the most important thing. So we have to inoculate ourselves against that toxic ideology. And then... We can begin to have the discussion about how do we want to run our state or our town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, citizen to citizen is what it's going to take. And um, it's a great reminder that I should go have tea with my neighbor later today. So she's invited (laughs) me over. I'm going to go do it. But Tony, um, it was great to visit with you. And uh, thanks for for stopping by and uh, sharing a little bit more for the folks that are are listening. It's I, citizen. Yes. Yeah. Is is the man. And um, Thanks for, for, for sharing your thoughts. Thanks for having me, Debbie. All right. Thank you for joining this segment of Messages of Necessity. My name is Kyle Davis. I'm the Director of Public Affairs at the Empire Center, and I'm sitting down with Bill Hammond, Senior Fellow for Health Policy at the Empire Center. Bill, it is great to be able to speak with you today. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to be talking about hospital profits. You recently... Uh, published a piece discussing how New York's hospital profits surged in 2021. Um, Also, we published the data on our website backing this up. Bill, I'd love to learn a little bit more about why you want to look at hospital finances and what did you find out? So every year as part of the state budget, the legislature has to figure out the Medicaid budget and a big part of that budget is how how are they going to pay hospitals. And this year in particular, there's a debate over whether hospitals should get a 5% rate increase or a 10% rate increase. The, the governor's proposed five and the legislature has come back with 10. The industry obviously supports 10. Uh, and so this, it, you know, Medicaid's one of the biggest parts of the state budget and hospitals are one of the biggest parts of Medicaid. So 
Uh, but but the problem is that um, as the legislature is debating these things, they don't have up to date information about what hospitals' finances look like. How well are they doing? How poorly are they doing? Um, one way of getting at that is to look at the financial reports that they file with the federal government. Those financial reports are um, very thorough and detailed. Um, it's a it's a pretty big database. So you have to kind of crunch the numbers to get the information you want. And what I found when I crunched the numbers was that New York hospitals had their best year in at least five years, which is a little bit surprising because 2021, it was still the pandemic. It was still, things were still kind of uh, disrupted in the healthcare world. Um, but uh, overall, the hospitals saw their profits increase. The number of hospitals who were operating in the black increased to just over 60%. Yeah, so in, in the aggregate, they uh, they had revenue that was 4% more than their expenses. They, you know, they had something like $87 billion in expenses and $90 billion in revenue. Um, and like I say, almost two-thirds of them were operating in the in the black, which was higher than usual. Um, so I just thought it was important to let the legislature know that that this this was a situation in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. So your report says that some hospitals are reporting big profits uh, while others are having big losses. So what do you think separates the haves and the have have nots in the situation? It's actually um, there's one hospital, New York Presbyterian. It's it's probably New York's its biggest hospital and probably its most famous hospital and most well regarded. The uh, and it showed a profit. Uh, an excess of revenues over expenses of $1.5 billion, which is probably a record in New York State hospital history. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, there were hospitals that had um, deficits of $100 million or more. So it ran the, the gamut from big losses to big gains. Um, I think some of that has to do with the vagaries of the stock market. Um, hospitals, they get about um, between 80 and 90% of their revenue comes from payments made by insurance plans and patients, right? So direct payment for patient care. But they get other revenue from things like uh, operating the employee cafeteria, renting office space to doctors, operating parking garages, and most importantly, some of them make a lot of money by off of investments. You know, they have like an endowment and they have it plowed into the stock market or whatever. 2021 turned out to be a really strong year for investments. And so hospitals that did well in the stock market and had had large reserves to, to, to invest uh, ended up doing well. Whereas other hospitals, maybe they didn't do so well in the stock market or maybe they didn't have as much money to invest or maybe they had more people who were uninsured or on Medicaid who were who they were treating. And so those things played out differently in different institutions. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, Bill. Um, and to switch gears a little bit, I'd like to talk about some of the regional differences. Um, 
First off, we'll start more locally in New York State. Some of those hospitals that did well compared to those who did not do well, did you see any of those regional differences in New York? Did, you know, Western New York not do as well as, you know, the Southern tier or the Southern tier compared to New York City? How would you kind of describe that? I mean, the the basic picture I described where most hospitals were operating in the black was true pretty much everywhere in the state. Uh, the downstate hospitals referring to the lower Hudson Valley, New York City, and Long Island, in general, they did a little bit better than the upstate hospitals. Um, the one region that saw um, uh, overall uh, losses was Western New York, where um, for whatever reason, and this 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 seems to be a pattern actually, for whatever reason, those hospitals are struggling to make ends meet in a way that the rest of the state is not. Now, um, how does New York situation compare to the rest of the country? Generally speaking, our hospitals, in terms of these very basic bottom line figures, our hospitals are weaker than the national average. So a smaller percentage of our hospitals are operating in the black and the and the margins that they're reporting are smaller. Um, but that's uh, it's interesting to poke into that a little bit because the 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 question of being operating in the black or operating in the red involves two basic numbers revenue and expenses right. the revenue on the revenue side new york's hospitals are at the high end but their expenses are even higher and so that's why so many of them lose money because we have unusually high expenses in addition to having unusually high revenue so one of the things that I thought was interesting in the recent debates is that the hospital groups put out a report saying that four out of five of their members have negative or unsustainable margins. So how would you say that compares with the findings that you, you've uncovered? Well, first of all, that's referring to 2022. And unfortunately, the most recent financial data that's available comprehensively for the whole country and for all hospitals in the state is only uh, good up to 2021. So, you know, so it's it's over a year behind. Right. The, the the hospitals in their own analysis, they were looking at 2022, but they were also doing it based on a survey of their members, not based on looking at the actual financial reports, but by putting out a survey to their members and they they got a lot of responses. I think most hospitals responded to the survey, but the hospitals are characterizing their financial outlook rather than showing it. Um, another another situation that's come to my attention is that for the purposes of those survey, they focus on what's called operating income and operating expenses, meaning the patient revenue they get and whether that covers their patient expenses. And it's absolutely normal, both in New York and nationwide, hospitals generally barely break even or lose money when it comes just to patient revenue. They're really dependent on that non-patient revenue, including investment returns. And so if you just focus on the patient revenue, things are going to look much bleaker than if you look at the, the whole picture. And I don't think it makes sense to ignore the whole picture because um, non-patient revenue can be between 10 and 20% of a hospital's income. And so it's an important factor in, in their financial success. 
Now, I think you've already touched on this a little bit in your previous comments, but how does Medicaid really affect these hospital finances? Medicaid is the state federal program. It's a health plan for um, lower income people and disabled people, but it's it, it it started out as kind of a safety net for people who are really uh, in urgent situations, but it's become kind of a, a big um, catch-all health plan for anybody who doesn't have health insurance and has low income. And so at this point, it's covering more than 7 million people or more than 40% of the state's population. So obviously, a lot of people going to hospitals are on Medicaid. And Medicaid is the worst payer of any health plan. It's worse than Medicare, and it's a lot worse than private insurance. And so to the extent a hospital caters, you know, because of the neighborhood they're in or because they're, they're, uh, um, there are certain hospitals that see way more Medicaid patients than others. And it, like, it might be because of their neighborhood. It might be because of their mission. So New York City operates 11 hospitals their mission is to serve people regardless of their ability to pay. And they end up serving more than their share of Medicaid patients. And that can be a strain on hospitals' finances because like I say, they're the worst payers. Hospitals will tell you they generally lose money on taking care of Medicaid patients. Um, Medicaid ended up being about 16% of their total revenue in 2021. Um, that that probably means that it was, you know, maybe 20 or 25% of their patients because, because um, like I say, Medicaid doesn't pay its full freight. Um, and the question, the, the debate that they're having in the legislature is, should we do a 5% increase across the board or a 10% increase across the board? And the problem with the across, across the board increases is that all hospitals treat some patients on Medicaid and therefore all hospitals will get uh, more money from the state, including the hospitals that are already uh, operating in the black and turning large profits. So I think the legislature should kind of balance that. Do, do they really want to, Medicaid is a poor payer. It would be nice if Medicaid paid an adequate rate. Um, but it would also be very expensive. It would be billions of dollars. And does, does the state really want to spend, in the context of spending more money on Medicaid, does it want to make sure that that money goes just to the hospitals that really need it? Or is it also going to give more of the state's money to hospitals that really don't need it? So it sounds like uh, Medicaid increases are an important component of how hospital finances are going to impact the state budget. Are there any other components of your report that you think are timely in terms of the state budget conversation that's currently taking place? Well, the uh, stepping back from hospitals a little bit, I think there's a tendency when we talk about healthcare to, to sort of associate it with hospitals. We identify hospitals and healthcare as being one and the same thing. But in fact, a lot of an increasing amount of healthcare goes on outside of hospitals. It goes on in freestanding clinics or it goes on in um, doctor's offices and also nursing homes are a part of Medicaid. And so if you, if you spend more money on hospitals, that's money you're not spending on other forms of care that, that also should be getting consideration in this debate. Um, another thing to think about is that um, 
the rates that the state pays to hospitals are not the only way they, they, in addition to directly compensating a hospital for taking care of a patient, they also provide various grants. They have, they have grants that are supposed to support structural reform in hospitals. They have grants that are targeted to hospitals that are financially distressed. Outside of Medicaid, they also have grants for capital projects. And those things have been increasing dramatically, even as Medicaid has been increasing. So the total funding that hospitals get is actually quite high. Um, the most recent national data that are available show that our per capita spending on hospitals is 40% higher than the national average. And only about five or 10 years ago, it was 25% higher than the national average. So the gap between New York's hospital spending and the country's hospital spending has been getting wider pretty rapidly. Well, Bill, I would like to thank you for sitting down and talking with me about hospital finances. I think this gives both decision makers and everyday citizens who are concerned about New York state policy really something to think about and chew on. Um, and I would like to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode of Messages of Necessity. I ask you all to like the podcast and subscribe so we can reach more people. And I look forward to speaking with you next time. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.